Welcome to this episode of Sound Bites, a podcast series produced by the National Psoriasis Foundation, the nation's leading organization for individuals living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In each episode, someone who lives with psoriatic disease, a loved one, or an expert will share insights with you on living well. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at SoundBites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. My name is Shiva Mozaferian, and joining me today for a discussion about the latest research and developments in managing youth with psoriatic disease is Dr. Amy Poller, world-renowned pediatric dermatologist who is the Walter J. Hamlin Professor and Chair of Dermatology professor of pediatrics at Northwestern University, Banbury School of Medicine, and the director of the NIH-funded Skin Biology and Diseases Resource-Based Center. As director of pediatric dermatology clinical research, Dr. Poller is dedicated to translating new discoveries about skin disease and has led almost 100 clinical trials. Her most recent research involves the role of topically applied nanotherapy-based gene therapy to treat skin diseases, discovering immune dysregulation that may lead to inflamed skin and the mechanism of abnormal innervation in skin related to pain. Additionally, Dr. Poller is the inaugural co-president of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance, past president of the Society for Investigative Dermatology and Women's Dermatologic Society, and is currently the president of the International Society for Pediatric Dermatology. She's also served on the medical board of the National Psoriasis Foundation and is a past grant recipient from the National Psoriasis Foundation and the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. It's our sincere honor to welcome you back, Dr. Pollard, to address the latest treatment and research developments for youth with psoriatic disease. Originally, you were one of our initial podcast speakers when we launched Soundbites in 2019. At that time, you provided an update on treatment options and your research. How's the landscape of treatment options changed since 2019 for youth with psoriatic disease? It seems like more treatment options are now available for use, particularly among the biologics. That's right. The treatment landscape just keeps getting better and better. We have three new approvals for use in children. Ustekinumab was extended down to the age of six, and Ixekizumab and Sekikinumab were both approved for the age of six and up. That's particularly exciting, but on top of that, we've also got many others that are now approved for adults that are in trials for children. And in addition to the biologics, we're seeing some activity as well in looking at new topicals and some new orals. Wow, that's such good news. So you mentioned sekikinumab, which was approved in June 2021 to treat moderate to severe plaque psoriasis in children and teens. This past December was approved to treat enthesitis-related arthritis and psoriatic arthritis in children and teens. Can you address how sekikinumab acts differently than the TNF inhibitors? How important is this latest approval as a treatment option for youth with psoriatic disease? So the first biologics that we had available were the TNF inhibitors. We were very excited almost 15 years ago to have in trials and then published about Etanercept, which was the first TNF inhibitor. It did better, it seemed, than some of the ones we were using. And it had to be given not every day, but rather once a week as an injection. And as much as we were excited about that, next came adalimumab, which still is not approved in the United States for children, although used quite a bit off-label. And that was every other week. We then had ustekinumab for teens, and that allowed us to give a medicine at baseline one month later, and then every three months, which for pediatric patients is pretty cool, given that they don't particularly like injections. And it worked very well. 
Fast forward now to the last few years, and we're able to use ustekinumab down to six years of age. And now we've got secukinumab and ixekizumab, which both are inhibitors of the interleukin 17A cytokine, which we know is really central in psoriasis. So what's been the difference with these agents? Well, for one thing, as opposed to the TNF inhibitors, these other agents now that address IL-17A increases are both given just once a month. So that's pretty helpful for children. But I think particularly important is how much more effective these newest agents are compared to the TNF inhibitors, and particularly uh, etanercept, but even the adalimumab as well. It has been shown, for example, that these are able to reach POSSE 90 and POSSE 100 in the majority of patients. So secukinumab and ixekizumab were both in 12-week trials in the range of 73 to 75% achieving POSSE 90 at week 12 for both secukinumab and ixekizumab. And by that time, in the range of about 50%, in the 12 to 16 week period for these agents in terms of reaching POSSE 100. Now you may say, well, is that really so important if they reach POSSE 90, meaning that only 10% of what they started with is left or POSSE 100 where it's totally cleared versus a POSSE 75. And I would say that particularly children and teenagers really don't like those topicals. I've seen so many who still have residual disease that just don't like to use their topicals to try to finish the job. So being able to reach those makes a big difference. And indeed, there was a study recently from Bruins et al. in 2020, JAMA Dermatology, that showed that there was a significant difference between a change in the children's dermatology life quality index of those who had a reduction by 75% in posse versus those who were able to achieve at least 90 in their posse reduction. So it does make a difference to have that greater efficacy, and these also tend to work quite quickly. And Dr. Poller, how about the safety profile for secukinumab or exekizumab? Are there any concerns parents should be aware of? With respect to safety, I think we're really feeling pretty comfortable with these biologics. That's not to say that they're not without some potential risks. We don't know anything about long-term risks, particularly with the newer ones. And we certainly know that we need to keep an eye on infections. But the bottom line is that other than injection site reactions, which don't tend to happen very often and tend to be transient and usually relatively mild, we're really not seeing much problem. With the IL-17 inhibitors, there are two theoretical risks that we're keeping an eye on that could theoretically be with either secukinumab or ixekizumab, but so far we're really not seeing much. In the ixekizumab trial, there were a few children and adolescents who developed inflammatory bowel disease. None of them were in the secukinumab trial, which is another interleukin 17A inhibitor. And we certainly know that this is the age group where kids get inflammatory bowel disease. So there's really not any reason right now to know that this is causal but we're keeping an eye on it. Similarly, there is some reason to worry a little bit about increased risk of candidal infections if we extensively lower interleukin 17A based on what we know about the immune system and that that cytokine is important for warding off candidal infections. 
However, in the Ixikizumab trial, there really wasn't any evidence of candidal infections. And in the Sikikinumab trial, overall, it was a 1.8% incidence. So pretty much nothing. Again, we're keeping an eye on it. But so far, the safety profile looks pretty clean. So you made a statement in 2019 article about how research suggests there are possible differences in how psoriasis develops in children compared to adults, which could be potential targets for treatment. Can you please elaborate on this statement? What are the differences? Well, I wish we knew more about childhood psoriasis and its pathogenesis versus adult. We really don't. What I can say is that really the proof is in responses to the newer agents. And we're seeing great success with children, just as we did with the adults in the trials with the biologics. So that really suggests that it's not terribly different, but there have been some studies, very few, that have looked at the cellular infiltrates in children versus adults, or have looked at cytokine profiles, and have suggested that there might be higher levels of interleukin-22 and TNF in children and slightly lower levels of IL-17 versus adults. But clearly the responses that we're seeing to the agents that target IL-17 suggest the tremendous importance of IL-17 in psoriasis in children. And of course, there's the relationship between IL-17 and IL-22, as well as the relationship between both of those and NTNF. They, they really are synergistic. So I think we're going to find out more over the next few years as we dig deeper into understanding the pathogenesis in children. But the fact remains that children respond very well to targeting of the IL-23 TH17 pathway. There haven't been any oral systemic treatments recently FDA approved for youth with psoriatic disease. You led a clinical trial for Pemelas to determine the appropriate dosing for youth ages 6 to 17. Can you please provide an update on the results of this trial? And is it possible we'll see new oral treatments for youth soon? Well, I think uh, Premalas results aren't out yet from the phase three trial in children, but hopefully we'll see those soon. So this was a while ago. This was the phase two trial. And it really wasn't geared for looking at how effective the agent was. But nevertheless, in that trial, there was an almost 70% reduction in the posse over the 16-week period. I think a Premalas has been used by many patients with moderate psoriasis, And I will tell you that there are many children and adults who want to get away from the injection of a biologic or the concern about something that's going to stick around for a little while longer than an oral that would be given twice a day. So I think we'll see some good results come out of this. It is not going to be as potent as the biologics and particularly these biologics we were just talking about, but it is an alternative out there that seems quite safe, the major risk being the GI side effects, which still occur in the minority and are often tolerable, versus going to a biologic. So for the right patients with maybe moderate disease, I think it's a great alternative. We're also going to see ducravacitinib coming on the market probably for adults and over time for children as a TIC2 inhibitor that is oral. And it remains to be seen yet the safety package and how that will be related to or not the JAK inhibitors. So you mentioned acravacidinib. Are there other treatments in the pipeline for youth with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis? Every single biologic that's out there for adults has moved forward into trials for adolescents and or younger children. We will likely see those on the market in the future. Ducravacitinib 
is also moving towards these trials for younger than adults. And we'll have to see what happens with its approval for adults. And after that, uh, whether it's going to be a, a safe and effective medication for the pediatric population. It's so nice to hear treatment options for youth will continue to grow. It's such a different environment from when you provided your previous podcast with the MPF. So additional research that you're conducting and spoke about on your last podcast is the role of topically applied nanotherapy to treat skin diseases. This is such a fascinating concept. Can you please provide an update on this research? What have you discovered so far and how would this change topical treatments? We were doing trials in mice with psoriasis-like disease, um, nanotherapies that were able to get through the skin when applied topically in both human skin and mouse skin, and were shown to inhibit specifically the gene expression of TNF in one case, and in the other, interleukin-17 receptor. Now, these agents went into some very early trials for safety with humans, and they passed them. There was no problem with safety, but they haven't really progressed further. The company that's been working on them has done some great work with systemic administration for glioblastoma and uh, some other neurologic disorders. And I hope they do get back to topical medications that we can use in dermatology, but that hasn't happened yet. I will say on the other hand, that there are some topicals emerging for psoriasis that are non-steroidal, particularly reflumolast, which is a PDE4 inhibitor that appears to be more potent than crisoborol and so far doesn't seem to have stinging or burning associated with it, but is not yet available for children with psoriasis. And then the other being Topinarov, which is the first TAMA medication out there that is an agonist for the aryl hydrocarbon receptor. So I'm hoping that we will have some new topicals to use rather than continuing often chronically to use some of these fairly potent topical steroids for our children with psoriasis. It's such exciting times. In your lab, you're also looking at the science behind itch and how it applies to youth with psoriasis and other skin diseases. What is the impact of itch on the quality of life? And what have you and your team discovered about immune dysregulation that leads to inflamed skin? We've had a flurry of activity looking at itch in psoriasis over the last few years, and we've been part of that as well. We always think about atopic dermatitis and how central itch is to that disease and how much it impacts the quality of life. However, we don't usually associate it with psoriasis until more recently. It's been shown that more than 70% of children who have psoriasis do complain of itch, and most of that is an itch in the numeric rating scoring system of at least four, so clinically significant. We find that it may just be, for example, restricted to the scalp. That's a big area of itch. But nevertheless, it does have an impact on children. We know that itch can be quite uncomfortable. Usually with psoriasis doesn't keep them up at night in the same way that atopic dermatitis does, but occasionally it does. And this is certainly a problem in addition to the visibility of the psoriasis, which is quite an issue for many affected children that if they have to sit there in school, for example, scratching their scalp, it is another activity that makes them feel different. So the itch and the high visibility of psoriasis in pediatric patients and 
particularly in those adolescents who are so concerned about fitting in at such a critical time for their psychosocial development, this can be an issue. I will tell you that in the lab, we have some mouse models of psoriasis, and we've been watching these mice scratch quite a bit in our videotapes. So even in mouse models, itch can be an important component. So you're involved in so many different facets of psoriatic disease management research, from treatment options to other diseases related to psoriasis, in particular metabolic disease. According to one study, obesity in children with psoriasis preceded onset of skin disease in more than 90% of children. What discoveries have you made that you feel parents should be aware of regarding comorbidities? Are there screening guidelines available addressing comorbidities in youth? There are several comorbidities associated with pediatric psoriasis. As you pointed out, the obesity is a problem that is almost always present before the onset of psoriasis in those children who are obese with psoriasis. And that makes us think about the very high percentage of children who have an affected first degree family member, often a parent, 30 to 35% of children have an affected first degree family member. The potential guidance to families who are concerned that their children are at risk of getting psoriasis who, particularly if they also are obese or overweight, that the entire family needs to very early on adopt a healthy lifestyle in the way that they eat, in the way that they exercise. In contrast, other comorbidities associated with pediatric psoriasis, although they may be present at onset, it may be the first sign, often occur after the onset of the cutaneous disease. We don't see a lot of psoriatic arthritis. It's classified as juvenile idiopathic arthritis among our pediatric patients. And it's about 1%, perhaps a little less than that, in contrast to the much higher percentage of adults with psoriasis who go on to develop joint disease. We know that there's an increased risk of inflammatory bowel disease, and there can be an increased risk of parts of the metabolic syndrome or even the entire metabolic syndrome, and particularly in those children who do tend to be overweight or obese. In our studies, we've definitely shown a correlation of that central adiposity with the risk of psoriasis as well. And there's soft data about hypertension or increases in lipids or evidence of diabetes as well. So all of these things need to be monitored. And in fact, a group of experts gathered, pediatric dermatologists and pediatric specialists with some of these organs that can be involved and made recommendations that were published back in JAMA Dermatology in 2007. It was Ozier et al. if anyone wants to look that up. And then these were cited as well when we provided guidelines through the American Academy of Dermatology specifically for pediatric psoriasis in the Mentor et al. Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology article with the guidelines in 2020. So these are available. I think one of the frontiers that we need to think about more and more is mental health issues in children with psoriasis, particularly anxiety and depression. And along with the high visibility of the disorder and maybe that itch, but effect on quality of life, we can see that that can also translate into increased risks for mental health issues. So we need to be screening for that as well as part of our evaluation and making sure that this doesn't become a problem. Finally, I'll just mention that there's been a huge amount 
of interest in cardiovascular disease in adults with psoriasis, but pretty much nothing studied in children other than, of course, we know that link with obesity and that central adiposity. And that's an area that we've recently started to do more research in, in my group, really thinking about, can we find some early signs of cardiovascular disease, particularly in our teenagers who've had their psoriasis for a few years? And very importantly, can that be turned around? I will say that even though the majority do not have evidence of hyperlipidemia when we look at their fasting lipids, there's been some very exciting work that's come out of a collaboration between Winnis Hom and Nihal Mehta at the NIH that found across the board an increased risk of lipid function abnormalities in children with psoriasis, a greater in those with more severe disease. So for those who have more severe disease, do we need to pay more attention to obesity? As we talked about, patients who are overweight or who have obesity have an increased risk of psoriasis and particularly an increased risk of moderate to severe psoriasis. And there are correlations between the degree of central adiposity and the severity of the psoriasis. We also know that there is certainly an increased risk of having metabolic disease if one is obese, that's clearly been shown in adults to be a risk factor. But on top of that, even in those patients who have obesity as a confounder, when you adjust for that in adults, there still is an increased risk of metabolic disease with psoriasis. But those studies have not been performed in large numbers of patients yet in the pediatric realm. So that remains to be seen. Nevertheless, the cytokines, the immune landscape that we can see in the skin and in the blood of, of patients with psoriasis overlaps with that of obesity, overlaps with that of metabolic disease in terms of biomarkers. So we know that there are some shared factors in the disease itself, and certainly there are going to be some shared markers in terms of family and genetic risk factors that are in our patients with pediatric psoriasis. You previously mentioned the guidelines for the care for the management and treatment of psoriasis in pediatric patients and the contacts for monitoring for comorbidities. What else can you tell us about these guidelines? These are very complete guidelines. In addition to talking about comorbidities, it certainly talks about the impact on quality of life, gives background about some of the differences between pediatric psoriasis and adults, and very importantly, talks about management, both from the standpoint of topical treatment to phototherapy and systemic therapy. So I think they're excellent in terms of providing a lot of detail about evidence-based guidelines. Now, these were done before the availability of some of these more recent biologics came out. So they do need to be updated, and I'm sure they will be in the future. So what in your mind represents the current most important unmet need for youth with psoriatic disease? And what can be done to address this need? There's so many questions out there about pediatric psoriasis because, frankly, we've had much less research performed in, in this age group than in adults. Certainly, we need to know the long-term risks of some of the medications that we're using, particularly in children. They have many more decades ahead of them than older adults, for sure. We also want to understand better the long-term impacts of management. I also think about 
all of the research that's been done in adults showing clear evidence of that increased risk of cardiovascular disease, even without obesity and some of these other risk factors, suggesting that the psoriasis and its inflammation drives cardiovascular disease and, and these metabolic abnormalities. It makes me wonder whether we can identify children who are at increased risk early on because of their psoriasis and consider being even more aggressive in those children. And then if that would even make a difference, can we treat more aggressively to decrease systemic inflammation and reduce their later risks of these other systemic diseases? That to me is a huge question. I also think we need better therapies. We've got a lot of biologics out and coming, but topicals for the majority of patients just have a ways to go. We know that 80% of patients, in some studies more, have mild to moderate disease and are really not in the group that we would be starting methotrexate or biologics. And yet we're treating them with potent topical corticosteroids, maybe a vitamin D3 analog, and perhaps we're reaching for some of our other topicals, but they're not as effective as we might like. And they certainly aren't getting rid of those memory T cells that are there and providing any long-term benefits. So many of our patients, if we stop the medication, it comes back often in the exact same areas. So this is a, an area, particularly for children in whom we really wanna be able to use topicals, and especially if more limited, to have uh, just better and other choices for agents coming out that can get us away from some of these potent steroids that we're using right now. And finally, I think that this is a disease where the environment makes such a difference. Think of the Kebner phenomenon and how trauma elicits lesions or how strep infections cause the flares of psoriasis. We really don't understand the mechanism there, but if we could understand that better, we might find ways to prevent flares or prevent psoriasis altogether in children at increased risk. Wow, we still have so many needs as you just highlighted. In closing, we asked this question the last time you provided a podcast, and I'd like to ask you again. What do you feel will be the next biggest breakthrough for treating youth with psoriatic disease? I am so thrilled about the availability of all of these biologics for our patients with moderate to severe psoriasis, and I think that's been the biggest breakthrough so far. However, we certainly can use more medications. I love the fact that there are new topicals coming down through the pipeline. I'm not sure if they're gonna be as potent as some of the super potent and potent topical steroids that we use right now, but they certainly might be just as good. And if they can even be steroid sparing agents for those who have milder disease, that would be fantastic because the chronicity of use of some of these potent steroids makes me worry as a practitioner. I would also say that oral medicines that might be safe would be very much appreciated for those who maybe aren't just localized to elbows, knees, areas that we can fairly easily treat with topicals, but someplace in between that and the ones we usually move up to the injected biologics. So I think there will certainly be a place for oral medications when they become available in our pediatric population. Thank you, Dr. Poller, for offering such a bright look at what the future holds for youth with psoriatic disease. The research that you are conducting will have such a lasting impact on the care and management of pediatric psoriasis. 
Thank you for all you're doing for this community. My pleasure. For our listeners, if you'd like more information to help a child or teen with psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis, check the RSpot website at psoriasis.org forward slash R hyphen spot, which now offers a recommended playlist of webinars and past podcasts for you to view and listen to, including Dr. Pollard's initial podcast in 2019. Don't miss our live Healthier Together community conference on April 30th in Chicago, which includes sessions for youth with psoriatic disease and a session with Dr. Poller. Register today at psoriasis.org forward slash conference. And finally, thank you to our sponsors who provided support on behalf of the Sound Bites episode through unrestricted educational grants, Jansen, Lily, and Novartis. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sound Bites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Soundbites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Ghana, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage. To learn more about this topic or others, please visit psoriasis.org or contact us with your questions or comments by email at podcast at psoriasis.org.